Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. How do I become a writer? Write. That's really what you have to do, because there's a big difference between wanting to be a writer and being one, and it's in your power to bridge that yawning chasm, and you just have to sit down and do it. HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries, Eric Asimov. Eric Asimov is an American wine critic for the New York Times, with articles subsequently published in the International Herald Tribune. Asimov was born in Bethpage, New York, and is the son of Stanley Asimov, former vice president for editorial administration at Newsday. Eric's manifesto, How to Love Wine, has been called the most radical wine book of 2012. In 1992, Asimov conceived and wrote the 25 and under column for the New York Times, dedicated to restaurants where people can eat lavishly for $25 and under. He's also done freelance work for other publications, including Food and Wine, Details, Martha Stewart Living, and Sommelier Journal. In 1980, Eric graduated from Wesleyan University, and in 1984 began working for the New York Times as an editor in National News. Back then, and this was uh, 1984, and I was uh, 26 years old, and, and coming to the New York Times, which I had read all my life, was like this, wow, I can't believe it. This is this dream job. I don't, I don't want to be an editor, but this is the New York Times, and this is New York where I grew up. And, and all of these famous people whose names I knew worked there and now were my colleagues. This was a time where newspapers were in a transition when my father worked at Newsday, when I was a kid, it was just like one of those, you know, 50s black and white movies. There were guys, almost all men with the occasional woman, with their, their ties and their white shirts rolled up and clattering uh, telegraph machines and people yelling all over and smoke and coffee and booze and, and people misbehaving and... Uh, I remember my father was famous for being the only guy covering Nassau County politics in the 50s who was not on the take. And I mean, that's just the way things were. Not at the New York Times, of course. But by the time I got there in 1984, people were still smoking. They were still drinking. They were still yelling. Computers, though, were quiet. There wasn't the clatter of typewriters or teletype machines, but they were all the, these outsized personalities, whether it's uh, A.M. Rosenthal or Johnny Apple or James Reston, Tom Wicker, and the editors who I worked with were like the craziest, most eccentric, most brilliant people I had ever been around. And um, I don't think anybody ever sets out to be a copy editor and certainly not a young person. But you end up there and at the times it seemed like everybody and oh, in their spare time, they were a novelist or they had built a wooden boat from scratch and sailed it around the world or they were the world's foremost authority on a certain kind of bird or you know it was just a, a crazy collection of people and a lot for me to take in
you know, I had been obsessed with eating and drinking food and wine, restaurants, um, and cooking a little bit since I was a teenager. And for whatever reason, it never occurred to me to try to make a living doing that. They weren't the same sort of role models that you have now. It wasn't until I actually was in college that the Times developed its food section, which was then called the living section. Frank Pryle had just started to write about wine. Craig Claiborne was there, but it wasn't something that I could aspire to, really. And I had worked in restaurant kitchens, but that also was not something that I really thought about. You know, again, this was sort of before the era of celebrity chefs or, or even, you know, status chefs. The people that you read about in restaurants were the maitre d's or, you know, Henri Soleil of Pavillon. So it was more something that was for pleasure. And it wasn't until I was at the Times that I actually saw a possible uh, professional opportunity for myself. Because by that time, then I knew all these people. And I, I read Frank Pryle and Brian Miller was the restaurant critic then. These were the greatest jobs in the world to me. And there were just two of them. So there was not really something that I felt that I could aspire to. But at the same time, I had a lot of free time because of my working hours, and I wanted to write, and I thought, well, maybe I can use my free time to try to write some stories for the food section and sell them and get paid. And it was a, you know, it was a great in for me that I was actually on the staff of the newspapers. You know, I had instant credibility. It wasn't somebody just sending in an unsolicited uh, proposal. I thought, what can I write about that nobody else is covering? So the first few pieces I did in the mid-'80s were on beer in New York, uh, and this was just as the craft brewing phenomenon was was taking hold. And if anybody remembers New York in the 80s, uh, New York was way behind the wave on this. Uh, in America, craft brewing started on the West Coast and very, very gradually moved east. And in 1985, I think it was, it was big news that Samuel Adams Beer, this, this startup in Boston that had won an award at the Great American Beer Festival, still a new competition, was going to be available in New York. I wrote about that, and I wrote about, uh, you know, draft beer. People always used to say draft beer was better than bottled beer, and, and, uh, and yet it was always so bad. And Why was this? That was investigative journalism, and home brewers and things like that. And then I branched out into, uh, you know, what was this Heath bar that people were using to top ice cream with? Nobody ever heard of this obscure candy bar, and suddenly it was like this national phenomenon. I started doing this, and the authorities at the Times were like, oh, we didn't know you were interested in food. Maybe you want to do something on the living section. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this is a place where typically you, if you got hired at the Times, you wanted to uh, cover politics or foreign wars or, you know, be based in Paris. Who wouldn't? And so, you know, I was marching in a different direction and therefore there seemed to be a little less competition for a job like that. And I ended up with it. I started out as an editor there in, in the late 80s on the living section, but I was moving towards writing. What I really thought 
we should do and which we weren't really doing at the times was covering inexpensive restaurants the way we covered other restaurants. And it didn't start until the end of 91 or, or 92 because of the last upheaval of newspaper wars in New York City. Back then, you had New York Newsday, my father's newspaper. It was Long Island Newsday, but it, it was moving into New York City in a big way. And this was thought to be a significant competition for the New York Times. And they had writers who were paying serious attention to inexpensive restaurants in New York City, not just cheap places to eat in Manhattan, but restaurants in various immigrant neighborhoods in Queens, Brooklyn, and so on. And you had Robert Sietzema. Before he started writing for The Village Voice, he used to write a newsletter called Down the Hatch. He was a wannabe rock and roll bass player who was obsessed with food and would send this out to his... uh, friends and acquaintances. And it was just a great history of the places that he was discovering and eating. And Jim Leff had started uh, reviewing restaurants for New York Press. So there was this tremendous buildup of interest in restaurants like this. And the attitude at the Times would always be, well, we have a restaurant critic. We cannot dilute the critical voice of the New York Times, which always seemed ridiculous because they had three people reviewing books and four people reviewing movies and you know, Brian Miller can't be everywhere. So um, eventually, they, I guess, I, I always thought because of the competition from the other newspapers, they said they agreed. And then somehow they picked me to do it. certainty that surrounds wine is completely contrary to the living nature of a good wine. It changes over years, we know that, but it also changes over minutes in a glass. It changes in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. It changes depending on the temperature, depending on your mood, who you're with, what you're eating, where you are in in life. And all of these things make wine very unpredictable, and it made clear to me at least that trying to display mastery over wine says something more about what we wish for than reality. You can divide wine very simply into people who demand control over it, and these are producers who decide what kind of wine they they like, how they want it to taste and smell, what score they want it to have, who they want it to appeal to, and so on. And they have a goal, uh, an end product in mind, and their process of making wine is, is determined by achieving that end product. You can see how they farm because uh, they don't want to leave agriculture to chance. They want control over nature. They're going to manage as best they can uh, vineyard conditions and and so on. And there are other people who, yes, they have a goal in, in mind too, but they are also not going to try to control every last variable. There's a place for chance. You can help to guide wine towards what you hope, but nature is not controllable. It has its effect. It's going to change the character of that year's crop and that year's wine. 
Uh, once you're starting to make the wine, you can hope it goes the way you want to go, but you're not going to use manipulations, uh, outside manipulations at least, chemicals, tannins, uh, oak flavoring, uh, other kinds of enzymes to sort of uh, end up where, where you want to be. And they don't take focus groups to determine what's going to be popular. They uh, make wines that, that they like. You know, I, I come very much down on the side of letting wine go its own way as much as possible. You know, you can exaggerate that, and they do in marketing. You know, if you just leave grapes and grape juice to its own, you get vinegar. So there's always a, a semblance of guidance that the winemaker has to have, but it's not overarching control. And I think the same goes into talking and writing about wine. The more you demonstrate your certainty, the more you hope you're conveying authority. I, I don't see my role so much as telling you definitively what's going to happen with each bottle of wine, but inspiring people to want to know more about wine, to understanding more how it changes, how it evolves, why it might taste one way now and a different way later, and to be able to embrace all of those manifestations of a wine. Well, the wine media has changed tremendously in 10 years. And, you know, that's partly due to the spreading of high-speed internet. Now there are so many more voices than back in the print days where you had a couple of wine publications and scattered newspaper columnists. And most of them tried to answer the question of what I should buy. <laughs> you know, that's always an important question for consumers. But I think... And I'm very lucky to have the freedom to conceive of my job this way, is that my job is not to sell wine. The wine spectator has to sell wine. The wine advocate has to sell wine. That's what their existence is based on, a public that buys wine and wants to know what to buy. My job is to help people think about wine and think about it, in a sense, as a cultural expression the way you might think of art or architecture or, or movies or books. It's a little bit different because it's a consumable product um, that's not there tomorrow. But in many ways, it still uh, is an expression of people, place, heritage, history. And there's a lot more to understanding wine than simply, should I buy this Sauvignon Blanc or that one with my $12? Nowadays, where you have so many options, uh, so many people talking or writing about wine, and mostly doing it because they're passionate about it, not because they're getting paid. The number of people being paid to write about wine has, has unfortunately gone way downhill over the last 10 or 15 years. But you have many more ways of thinking about wine and, and looking at wine. If you want to go into the grocery store on the way home and you want to know if you should buy this Cabernet or that Cabernet, you've got scores posted there, and you can do that. But if you want to delve more deeply into wine, you've now got scores of independent wine shops where you can go in and get into a great conversation with some merchant who is as passionate about wine as the old indie record shop clerk was about music 20 years ago, and you get turned on 
that way. Same thing with sommeliers. Uh, the old image was the snooty guy who tried to rip you off, upsell you. Nowadays, you have got passionate young people who maybe they're too passionate sometimes, but they want to turn you on to the things that move them. And you've got this on the internet, uh, all, all over the place. People who are so interested in every manifestation of wine. So you can now approach it from many different angles in a way that wasn't nearly as possible a few years ago. It's a very social Darwinian place, the internet, and, you know, the fear that we're going to be given all sorts of bad information or boring information. Yes, that's a real fear, but I think um, a lack of credibility very quickly shows. From the New York Times perspective, there's an element in danger because, you know, we believe that we should be completely removed from the wine industry. We don't accept free trips. We don't accept free dinners and educational exercises where the winery or the region tells you what's so great about it and that sort of thing. Obviously, the Times is an institution that can afford to set itself apart from that. But that's really the way most wine media operates. And it, it's incumbent on consumers to be ultra cautious all the time. It's not always easy, but I do think that the irresponsible journalism that we feared would come with uh, everybody having access to a computer maybe hasn't happened. One of the things that I believe about wine is that to really get to know it, you have to drink it. You can't just taste it. And this is a little bit of a reaction to, um, you know, I see a lot of people who kind of keep track of all the wines they've had. And then, you know, they have a little like a master list that they're checking off. Oh, I've had this. I've had that. I've had this. And I always wonder, I mean, what what is the motivation for that? Is it to feel that you now understand these many different expressions of wine, or is it just to claim that you've had it? And to claim that you've had it is completely uninteresting to me, and I don't, I don't really see why it's interesting to anybody else. Maybe it's a collector mentality, and I've opened this bottle, I've tasted it, now let's move on to the next one. I've been to the airport in Detroit, therefore I've been to Michigan, I never have to go back. I think that there's so much to be learned and enjoyed and experienced with wine. Let's not leave it at that. Let's actually try to get to know it more. The second reason is that so much of our discussion of wine is, stems from the tasting experience. You've got a little swallow. You're summoning up the aromas and flavors that come to mind. And then that's that. But what does that mean? What does that tell you about the wine or why it's significant, why it's important, what it represents, what it connotes, what it tells you about history, place, or people? Not a lot. You can go so much deeper, and the depth of understanding is so much better when you've actually had that glass of wine and had it over time and with food and with people and had the opportunity to savor it rather than just to have a quick sip. It's an ongoing argument among wine people. You see it most often at big collector 
dinners where there are so many rare wines. There are too many, and the opportunity to try these wines is so rare that you want to have the entire experience. But because your aim is so wide, you end up tasting everything and experiencing nothing. So I always recommend to people that, you know, just pick a few and and really sit and get to know it and try to step back from the tumult if you can. If I have accomplished anything writing about wine for the times, um, I hope it's been just to to get people to question their assumptions about wine. Wine is such a difficult subject to learn and so costly that it's very easy and understandable when people just go back to books and end up repeating conventional wisdom endlessly. You really have to have a sense of experience, history, perspective, travel, all sorts of things to develop your own sense of taste and your own view of how things do work in wine. It's so important not to just repeat what you've read or what somebody said or just assume because one author or one magazine does things a certain way that that's the only way to do things. I would never claim to have all the answers, but I would say that I offer a a different perspective from many in wine because I promote uncertainty and ambiguity rather than definitive claims and decisive prognostications. And um, it's more difficult that way. But I think wine is complicated and difficult. And when you try to simplify it or demystify it, you may make it more accessible, but you make it less understandable. The thrilling wines, from my point of view, are these wines that are traditional wines that have been made for centuries and that are now widely available. I find the most new world production far less interesting because basically it's it's much more of a copycat sort of thing. And in the mid middle of the 20th century, for example, California picked out Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Merlot, Pinot Noir you know, a a set of five grapes that have been endlessly repeated again and again. And the variety now, I think, is beginning to show up in California because you've got a new generation that has experienced the diversity of the last 25 years and is influenced by it rather than by these five grapes that were deemed commercially viable 50 or 60 years ago. With wine and food, we dwell so much on the quality of it and what makes an authentic taco or a really good Chianti or, you know, why is that particular Hunan dish better than the other one? But equally, 
and maybe even more important is the community that comes from sharing wine and food. And it's almost more important than simply trying to assess wines and assess foods on a scale. Yes, we want to have very good preparations, good ingredients, fine examples, but it's the gathering of people over good food and wine that is the ultimate. Otherwise, you'd be eating everything in glorious solidarity so as not to be distracted from uh, the experience, and uh, it would mean something completely different. I was so used to thinking of myself as the kid, starting at the Times at 26 and you know, looking up to people like Florence and Marion Burroughs and Molly O'Neill and Brian Miller and Frank. And suddenly people are now describing me as, as venerable or the veteran writer. And uh, you, know, you look up and you've been doing something for 25 years. In that time, so much has happened. You know, we talk about the American food revolution of the 70s, but each decade since, it's accelerated, gathered steam, and to have witnessed all of this happening, not just in New York, but around uh, the United States and the world, is, it's been a tremendous privilege for me. This piece was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee for HeritageRadioNetwork.org with additional research by Sari Kamen. In order of appearance, the songs used in this piece are Pyongyang Part 2 by Comanche, The Dig by Spiral Jetty Club, Damayo 745 by Archipelago, Virgin Blood by Abel, It's Cold and Beautiful by Magical Mistakes, Asleep by Jerome LOL, Presidential Pardon by Taxstar, Flotation Device by Eric Maltz, and once again, Pyongyang Part 2 by Comanche. Thanks for listening to this special program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can connect with us for more on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, iTunes, and Stitcher. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To become a member and learn more about our programming, visit our website, 